The following message was given by Nick Kidwell, the senior pastor of Valley Creek Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.valleycreek.church. I have to mention, because I love when we sing Joy to the World, and I, I like to share this fact, and it ties in to our message this morning, but Joy to the World, uh, the author of it, actually had in mind the second coming of Christ when he wrote of it. We sing it at Christmas time because we think of the first coming, but it, he actually has in mind that second coming of Christ when all of these promises will be fulfilled fully. So I love singing Joy to the World. When we sing it, have in mind of what Christ has done when he came and what he's going to do. And that's what we are doing this Christmas season in our Advent series. We are remembering what Christ has done We are looking forward to what Christ is going to do. We are on week three of our Advent series. Week one, we saw the curse and the promise, the brokenness that entered our world through sin, and the promise that one day a descendant of Eve would come and crush the head of evil. We then read last week about the promise and the king and how this coming serpent crusher would sit eternally on the throne of David as a righteous king over God's people. And now this week, we read about the king and the kingdom, taking time to dwell on the glorious kingdom that this king will be bringing in. One of the most recognizable verses associated with Christmas comes from the prophet Isaiah. For to us a child is born... To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness for this time forth and forevermore. This prophecy is about a king, the king that was promised to David. But this passage is, in fact, one of many glorious prophecies in the book of Isaiah about this coming king. Some have called Isaiah the fifth gospel because of the vast amount of messianic prophecies within it and the number of times that the gospel writers quote from it. To give a little background, Isaiah wrote in the 8th century BC during the time of the capture of the north kingdom of Israel by the Assyrians. If you remember from last week, after Solomon, the kingdom was split in two, with the north kingdom being called Israel and the southern kingdom called Judah. That was where David's throne reigned in Judah. During this great turbulence for both the north and in a lesser way the south, During Isaiah's time, God spoke through the prophet Isaiah to remind his people of his great promises. He reminds them that he is the Holy One of Israel, that even though they were crumbling, he remains in his perfection, and he still intended to build for himself a people. In Isaiah, we read many descriptions of of the promised king to come. And throughout the book, especially in the latter half, we get many pictures of the kingdom that he would be bringing. 
As the people stood and saw the kingdom of Israel crumbling around them under sin, oppression, and exile, God reminded them that he is going to keep his promise to deal with evil. He is going to keep his promise to have a king sit on the throne from the line of David. He is going to keep his promise to make them a great nation. And it's this great nation, this kingdom of God that we will be looking at today. So please, if you would, if you have a Bible with you, turn to Isaiah 65, where we will be reading verses 17 to 25. Our Advent messages have been designed to help us feel the longing that the people of Israel felt as they awaited the Messiah. As we read of the kingdom today, it won't be hard for us to long with them. Because while some of what this kingdom is has come, much of it has not yet been fully realized. And so we long together with these people from years ago. Let me pray for us. Father, We thank you that you have spoken to us. We thank you that you have not left us without hope and without a witness. We thank you for the promises you've made and the promises you're fulfilling. We just ask, Lord, now that as we read your word, as we consider the promises you've made, as we consider the coming king and his kingdom, Father, that you would stir our hearts in affection, that we would grow in admiration for you, that we would love you, and that we would accept the life and the forgiveness that you offer us. Be with me as I seek to proclaim these truths. Help us to understand. We need your help to understand your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah 65, starting in verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. This is a glorious passage. As we talked about last week, sometimes the way biblical prophecy is given, there appear to be congruent events described when in actuality there may be various layers and time frames of their fulfillment. That would be the case here. This is a description of the kingdom of the coming king. Yet there are certain understandings and expectations the ancient Israelites 
would have had when they heard this. There are certain understandings and expectations that we have upon hearing this. But even though we are both expectant, and even though there are partial and complete fulfillments associated with this promise, the promise is the same to all of us. And there are universal truths we can pull out from this passage that that should elevate our hearts to worship about what the coming king would bring and has already brought for us. And it should stir our eager hope of the full and final realization of this promise. And as we look at this promise, at the picture of it, we need to understand how to view it. The kingdom pictured here in Isaiah is one that exceeded the ability of the people of Israel to fully comprehend. And it still exceeds our abilities, even with fuller revelation having been given to us. The people of Israel, they hoped for and expected an earthly king over an earthly Israel, a restoration of their glory and a return to their God. But the picture we get here goes far beyond mere revolution or revival. We see the grand eternal purposes and promises of God on display. Yet because God does not reveal everything to us all at once, He communicates these realities with the help of everyday language and experience, giving us tastes and hints of what's to come. God gave the people of Israel hints over time of the resurrection and the eternality of the age to come, yet much of that reality remained to them shrouded in mystery. The people of Isaiah's day wouldn't have had an understanding of the eternal life in the way that we do now with the fuller revelation we've been given. And again, even with what we have, questions still linger on how exactly things will play out, what exactly it will be like to be part of the kingdom when it's fully and finally consummated. And so God gives the people principles of the kingdom using images and language they could comprehend. Principles we have begun to experience now and principles we also eagerly await. So like last week, we're going to walk through several points that are drawn out for us about this kingdom. Last week, we looked at the king. This week, we're looking at the kingdom. And the picture that develops is that the kingdom of the coming king is an eternal kingdom of peace with God. The beginning of this section sets the stage for us. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. Though Israel, again, wouldn't have grasped the full eschatological, that's end times, realities of this passage, what was clear to them was that the coming kingdom of God would involve a complete overhaul of the order of things as they knew it. The fallen creation, the creation subject to sin, decay, and disease would somehow be turned 180 by this king. And so God describes this kingdom as a new creation. And in our passage, also as a a new Jerusalem, we heard that mentioned in the section from Revelation as well. This does not mean that the new kingdom would be confined to one city, But what it means is that the kingdom of God 
would be a collection of God's people under God's rule, in God's presence, in a place that God had prepared. That's what Jerusalem represented. And so Jerusalem, the place of the temple, the center of worship, becomes the representative for God's new creation, for the entirety of it. Not just one spot in the creation, the entirety of the creation, the entirety of the kingdom. And the first thing that we will look at about this kingdom is that it is blessed. This blessedness really encapsulates all the things that we're going to be looking at today. In our first Advent message, we talked at length about the glorious creation that God has made. We discussed the wonders of the earth around us, the evidences everywhere of God's glory and His power. However, though earth was created good, when Adam and Eve fell into sin, the earth, which once was surrounded by God's endless blessed presence, now fell under a curse. The earth now, rather than being characterized by blessedness, was characterized by disruption, brokenness, and sin. The kingdom that the king is bringing will be a new creation wiped free from the curse and will be firmly established once again in the blessings of God. The creative power of God that made all that we see around us will work a new creation even more glorious than this one. Verse 18 says, But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. Verse 23 says that the children of that place would be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord. In fact, if we pay attention, this whole passage walks us through how this kingdom is the blessed reversal of the curse. When Adam and Eve sinned, They disrupted not just humanity, but all of creation. We see throughout the scriptures. We read how the land languishes when Israel sins. We read in Hebrews how all creation groans because of us. Yet verse 17 says there will be a new creation. A new order under this coming king where where the earth and all that's in it, who once were subjected to futility, including animals and created things. Now, verse 25 paints a picture for us of all creatures, all creation, reaping the benefits of this new order. We get this picture of a lion sitting with a lamb. It's a picture of of a creation blessed and at peace. We read that in this kingdom where Eve's birth pains would be hard, And often sorrowful, now children would not be raised in vain and calamity would not be their experience. Where Adam's work would be hard, painful, and futile toil on the earth, in this kingdom, the blessing of the garden would be restored. The earth would, would yield its fruit in joy and there would be no futility in the working. We see this in verses 21 and 22. Both of these verses where it talks about building and planting and, and others inhabiting them, both of these are allusions to Deuteronomy where God promises 
The people that if they walk in sin, they will build, but others will inhabit. They will plant, but others will reap. In their sin, they will labor in futility. Such will not be so in the kingdom of God. And though we will talk further about this in a minute, where death once reigned supreme because of the curse, now life and longevity would be the experience in this kingdom. In the kingdom of God, there would be nothing accursed. This is emphasized for us by mention of the serpent. When God cursed the serpent back in Genesis, he said that he would go about on his belly, licking the dust of the earth, but he also said he would bruise the heel of Eve's descendant, and Eve's descendant would bruise the serpent's head. There would be a persistent battle between good and evil. There's a representation of that there. Notice what's missing in this passage. There's no mention of the bruised heel or the bruised head because in this new kingdom, evil will forever be kept away from God's people, away from curse. There's no heel and there's no head because the serpent will never be able to strike. Evil will forever be isolated from God's people. The snake will be in his place. The kingdom of the Son is a kingdom of blessing, not of curse. And so what then marks this blessed kingdom? Well, it will be a joyful kingdom. Joy is a defining characteristic of this passage. Be glad and rejoice forever. Create Jerusalem to be a joy her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. In fact, this kingdom will be so filled with joy and her people, a gladness that verse 19 says, no more shall there be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. Though all of us have many times of joy, much of our lives is spent in full awareness of the curse. We learn of loved ones who have died. We we read headlines of wars. We hit frustrating roadblocks in our efforts. We experience relational tensions and the doldrums of living in such a schizophrenic world torn between beauty and terror dulls our senses, seeks to pull us away from God, and often leaves our hearts cold and indifferent to all things. It leaves us fighting to experience joy. We can experience joy in this life because of God's grace, but the kingdom of this world is at its core a kingdom of darkness and sorrow. Wherever joy seeks to raise its head, a swift crushing hammer is brought down with the intent to squash that jubilation. Forces within and forces without are constantly working against our joy. This will not be the case in the kingdom of God. The kingdom will be one in which joy flourishes. This kingdom, this new Jerusalem, like the garden, will be a place where gloom and sadness have no place, where neither will have any foothold at all. There will be no weeping. There will be no crying or distress in this kingdom. So far will the experience of sadness be from us that it will be as if they are not remembered at all in that kingdom. Isaiah 9 says, 
You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Joy, not sorrow, will be not only the main experience, but it will be the only experience in the kingdom of God. It will be so perfect that God himself will take eternal delight in it. Where God weeps now over this earth, where God mourns now at the pains and struggles of his children, where God frowns now and expresses wrath towards sin, when God looks on this kingdom, there will be for him nothing but eternal delight and pleasure. It's as much a joy to him as it is to us. His kingdom is a joyful kingdom. And his kingdom is a peaceful kingdom. Last week we talked about the theme of rest throughout the scriptures and how from the day of mankind's fall into sin, rest in the way that God intended it has been elusive to us. We are at work in anxious toil. We are at work waging war against sin. We are at work opposing oppressors. We are in our natural state at enmity with God and restless in relation to him. The coming king will change all of that. Psalm 23 says he will make us lie down beside still waters and he restores our souls. How many kings in human history can we point to and say they brought full peace to the people? They eased all their burdens. They gave them complete rest. It can be said of no king. Yet Isaiah makes clear There will be a king who brings such everlasting peace. No more will man be at enmity with God, but when we call, and we will call, he will ever be present. Verse 24, no more will the oppressor claim the works of another's hands. Verses 21 and 22, no more will the haunt of death pursue all men, but life will be our faithful companion. Isaiah 9 also says, for the yoke of his burden... The staff for his shoulder, the rod of the oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior and battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Peace. This is a kingdom of peace. Peace within and peace without. One will be able to lay their head down on their pillow and never wonder if something's going to go bump in the night. Absolute surety of protection and full granting of rest. The Lord says in Isaiah 54, O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony, that's a precious stone, And lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles a gate, your gates of carbuncles, and all your wall of precious stones. Sounds like Revelation. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be. I lost my place. Established. You shall be far from oppression. For you shall not fear And from terror, for it shall not come near you. The kingdom of this king is not storm-tossed. It is firmly rooted, and its foundation is made of precious stones. 
Verse 25 of our passage says, there will be no fear because nothing will hurt or destroy. Not a thing. Not a thing. It's hard for us to grasp this. Not a thing. And that includes death itself. So this is a blessed kingdom, a joyful kingdom, a peaceful kingdom, and now a life-filled kingdom. For those of us who live in this day of salvation history, we can read this description of the kingdom and perhaps be perplexed by verse 20, where we read, if an infant who dies at 100 and the sinner who's 100 years is accursed, does this imply, we may ask, was there an expectation of death to be in this kingdom? Is there some interpretive model that we need to understand how this can be? As we've said, God uses metaphor of what we know to help us understand what we don't, to give us glimpses of what we don't. This is not teaching that death will be part of the kingdom. In fact, it's doing quite the opposite. The prophecy uses familiar language for these first listeners to grasp this bright neon sign of a message, this will be a kingdom of life. Earlier in Isaiah, Isaiah prophesied that the coming king will swallow up death forever. This is affirmed here. What this passage is saying through the use of metaphor is that in the kingdom of the sun, length of days will be long. Death will not be the terror that it has been under the curse. When Isaiah says, no more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days for the young man shall die a hundred years old. He's saying, all of this that you're used to, babies dying, life being cut off, young and old alike perishing under the curse of death, that will be no more under this king. Under this king, if a person died at 100, it would be as if they were an infant. Again, it's not saying infants will die. Earlier I said we'll be at peace in the kingdom. When we lay our heads on our pillows, we won't worry. I don't know if we'll sleep. I don't know if we'll have pillows. I don't know. But that's not the point. I'm using the image to help you grasp the meaning. This is not a promise that infants will die at 100. This is Language to say, if you died at 100 in this place, that person would be considered a babe. So long are the days of those in this kingdom that 100 days are like the first few breaths of a child. And in fact, the next sentence, the sinner, 100 years old, shall be accursed. Again, this isn't making a statement that there will be sinners in the kingdom. They won't. They can't be. We'll talk about that. But it's saying... If a person were to die at 100, they wouldn't be thought of as blessed. In our day, if you make it to 100, news reporters are sent to your house to ask you questions. Good for you, some think. I don't know. (laughs) You must have done something right. Not so in this kingdom of life. 100 years is so short. If you died at 100, you would be thought of to be accursed. Life will be so abundant That to die at a hundred would be a sign of a curse. Again, this is metaphor. It's not a statement that there will be sinners. It's not a statement that babies will die. It's not even a statement necessarily that there will be babies in the kingdom. As we learn in further revelation, in this new kingdom, there won't be marriage. We won't be given in marriage. So there probably won't be babies born. Nope. 
what this is saying, what this is doing is using language for us to understand we won't face death in the kingdom of God. Death won't be a haunt. It won't be a terror. Again, verse 25, the lamb will be unharmed by the lion. We read that in that place, nothing will hurt and destroy. Elsewhere in Isaiah, we get the image of a child playing near a venomous snake's hole without fear. When the king comes, he will totally undo the curse. That's what we're saying over and over again this morning. It will be undone, including death itself. This is a kingdom of life. When he comes, Isaiah says, the deaf will hear, the blind will see, and the lame will walk. Healing and life flow from this king, and healing and life are the heartbeat of his kingdom. The kingdoms of men strive for eternity. The scriptures say eternity is written on our hearts. We don't want to die. Men are trying to figure out the genes that will help us never to age. People are trying to figure out how we can download our minds into machines, but it's all futile. Even if we could extend our days by 50, 100, 500 years, we will all die. The only way to escape death is to enter into the kingdom of God. His kingdom is full of life. And that life comes because of the presence of God himself with his people, which is the next thing we see in this kingdom. It is full of worship. In the next chapter of Isaiah, we are told who it is that will enter into this kingdom. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. We talked last week that the coming king was not a benevolent king for all peoples, but for those who found shelter in his wings. This king comes to bring blessing and healing to the earth and to mankind, but to receive that blessing, one must acknowledge their guilt before God and their rebellion against him. One must align themselves with God over and over again in Isaiah, the prophets, and in the New Testament. It's clear that the kingdom of the king will be a kingdom that is utterly and absolutely free of anything corrupt, of any kind of rebellion against God. There will be no sin and no unrighteousness in this kingdom. Well, how then can we enter into such a kingdom when we ourselves are so full of unrighteousness? How can we expect to be members of such a kingdom? Isaiah makes clear in his prophecies, when this king comes... He will come as a humble servant who will be crushed for our sins and pierced for our iniquities. He will bear the chastisement that we deserve and he will purify us and cleanse us from all sin. He will make a way for us to be in this kingdom. Not because of what we've done, but because of what he would do. The Lord says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. With the coming of this king, there would be an offering to the people. The people of Israel and all of those outside of it to turn to him 
to forsake their unrighteousness and accept the king's pardon and forgiveness. There would be an extension of grace. We are told in verse 24 that the kingdom will be so united with God that when we call, he'll answer, and while we're yet speaking, he will hear, meaning he will respond. We will be in lockstep in the kingdom with God in his spirit, asking for that which pleases him and receiving from him freely all that is good. We will be with him on his holy mountain, as verse 25 says. One can only have such a relationship and approach the holy mountain of God if one has been made clean. This kingdom is made up only of those who worship God and the king that he sends. And all peoples from all nations are invited to worship him. Isaiah 56 says, Let no foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from the people. The Lord who gathers the outcast of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him beside those already gathered. This gathering will be from all nations and the kingdom will be made up of people from every tribe and tongue and nation of this earth who will come together and glorify and praise his holy name. The kingdom of peace is for those who will align themselves to the king and to their God. This stands as a hopeful promise for us. But it is also a solemn warning for those who persist in rebellion against God. For there to be no pain or sadness, no death or disease, no war or brokenness in this kingdom of God, there cannot be any sin in it. That means that if one has not been washed clean through repentance and allegiance to the Son, if one walks in sin, which is ultimately rejection of God and everything that He is, then rather blessing, one can only experience the full culmination of the curse. The Lord says at the end of this book, Isaiah, for behold, the Lord will come in fire. And his chariots like whirlwind to render his anger and fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment. He says, those who have turned to him will live forever with him. But those who rebel against him, their worms shall not die and their fire shall not be quenched. When the king comes and he brings his kingdom, he comes to purify and make a new creation. To those who accept his mercy, they will be purified through his sacrifice and welcomed into this new creation. To those who reject him and continue to rebel against God, they will be punished eternally and they themselves will be the evil purged from God's presence. This kingdom will be one in which every thought Every intention, every action of the hearts of mankind will be in lockstep with God's perfect holiness to the praise of his name. Again, we can't conceive what that will be like, but we are told it will be true. And this is the way that it will be forever. And that's our last point. The kingdom of the king is blessed, it's joyful, it's peaceful, it's full of life, it's full of worship, and finally, it is eternally secure. At present, 
We are accustomed to things coming and going. Historians say the average empire on this earth only lasts about 250 years. Nations come and nations go. People come and people go. Beauty fades, rust destroys, fads pass, nothing feels secure. That was true even for Israel as a nation. Israel was bound under Moses by a conditional oath. They would be in the land so long as they obeyed the Lord's commands. Adam and Eve, likewise, were subject to such a covenant of works. They would remain in the presence of God in the garden so long as they did not eat the fruit of the tree of good and evil. So Israel fell. Adam and Eve were evicted from the garden. Yet what did we say about God's covenant with Abraham and with David? Were those covenants subject to the ravages of sin? No, those covenants were steadfast covenants, not based on human performance or the rhythms of this world, but based solely on the grace and initiative of God. And this kingdom we see here is the culmination of both of those promises, a promise to bless Abraham build his family into a nation as a blessing to all peoples of the earth to give them a dwelling place of God's own design and the promise to David to eternally place the coming king on the throne. When the king comes, the kingdom that he is bringing is not a kingdom that can ever or will ever be shaken. It can't. But it's a kingdom that is eternal and it rests upon the steadfastness of the mercy of God alone. Of the increase of his government, there will be no end. 250 years will seem like a drop in the bucket of the kingdom of the king. The former things will not be remembered. Be glad and rejoice forever, says our gracious God. My chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. This kingdom will never end. Once the king comes and his people enter into his kingdom... All of the promises of his kingdom will surely come to pass. They will. That means for the inhabitants of this kingdom, once he deals with sin, sin will be no more. That means once he destroys his enemies, his enemies will never arise again. That means once he defeats death, death will never rear its ugly head again. When God made Adam and Eve, they were made with the ability not to sin and the ability to sin. When they fell, they lost the ability not to sin and they only had the ability to sin. In the kingdom that the king is bringing, in its full glory, the people of God will not only have the ability restored not to sin, but they will be utterly unable to sin anymore. It will not be a problem. With such assurance, we can understand how there can be such peace and joy in this kingdom, such intimacy with God, never a fear that it could be broken. The kingdom that was lost is not only restored, but it far exceeds the kingdom that we had initially been offered. God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. 
as Israel sat and languished in their sin, seeing the northern kingdom enslaved and carted off, as the southern kingdom worried about the same divine judgment coming to them, which it would sometime later, God gloriously declared that that would not be the end of their story. He declared that the king was coming and he would sit on David's throne. The king was coming and he was bringing with him a restored and perfected kingdom that all of God's people would enjoy eternally this time. Yet the people continued to wait and to watch and to wonder who the king would be. It would be another 700 plus years from the time of Isaiah before the people would have their answer. But first, they would experience exile. They would sit in 400 years of silence with no great prophets of the Lord. They would be in anguish under the rule of other nations. They would have no king. They would have no kingdom. But that would change. As Isaiah says, the people who walked in darkness would see a great light. And next week, we get to celebrate fully that great light that has shone. If you're here and you've not come to know the King, the Messiah, the Savior, know that He has come. And the kingdom that He's bringing, though it's only available in part on this earth, it has been eternally established, and by accepting his wounds, his piercings, his death for you, you can become citizens today of that kingdom and be eternally secure. That man is Christ Jesus. Come next week and hear more of how we can be sure that he is the one promised from long ago. Or talk with anyone that you've seen up front here today in church. You know what kingdom we're talking about. It's a kingdom of which we all, by the grace of God, have entered into. We are citizens of this kingdom. That kingdom where, where sin and wickedness has no part. That kingdom where communion with God is intimate and near to all. The kingdom of joy and peace. The kingdom led by the Savior King. As we participate and anticipate celebrating the coming of Christ who brought that kingdom, let's together wait and persevere by his grace that we might one day see the full and final consummation of this kingdom to come. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your mercy. Thank you that you do not treat us as our sins deserve. Thank you that though you could have easily called it a day on your creation from the moment we first resisted you, you enacted a plan of salvation. You promised to reverse the curse. You promised to establish a kingdom. You promised to bring us back to yourself and you would do these things independent of our works. You would do it based on your promise and the work that you've done for us. Father, as we remember your son this Christmas season, we just pray that our hearts would be full of joy, that we would be able to trust him, and that we would have entrance into your kingdom through his precious blood. I pray if there's any here this morning who do not know Jesus Christ, who have not become members of this eternal kingdom, I pray that this morning they would make an entrance to it, which you can do. We thank you for your word. We pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.
You've been listening to a message by Nick Kidwell, given at Valley Creek Church. For more information on the church and other messages, please visit us online at www.valleycreek.church.